And welcome to another Monday evening, everyone. I am Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where our <laughs> weekly get-together, where we're going to sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And, oh, to be in a pennant race, which both teams are in right now. Of course, it's not only the pennant race for Major League Baseball, but it's also the cold and flu season, and I've come down with that. Mark, you're lucky that you're in Dayton. Let's bring in our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue, and you're lucky you're there and I'm here. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry that you're feeling poorly, David, but uh, being the pro you are, you're trying to stick it out tonight, and uh, I know all the Indian fans out there appreciate that. You know, had we looked back <clears throat> when we began the show this year, I guess it was in, in late March, uh, maybe even earlier than that, that had we suspected in mid-September both of our respective teams would be in a pennant race, uh, that would have been pretty good news. And I think the Reds certainly have a much better chance of getting in the playoffs than the Indians, but the Indians are right there. I mean, if they go on a, a nice little winning streak, they're, they're going to get that second wild card spot. Well, let's give an update on what the teams are doing tonight. The Indians right now are leading the Kansas City Royals 4-1 to in the seventh inning, going into the eighth inning. Carlos Santana just hit a home run off the foul pole in right field to give the Indians that 4-1 to lead. What are the Reds doing tonight? Uh, sixth inning, or I guess it's going into the seventh now, the Reds trail 2 to nothing, And uh, I saw this as a trap series for the Reds against the Cubs. Number one, they always have trouble with Travis Wood, even though they've beaten him three times, actually four times, three times this year. But he's always pitched well against them. And, I, and after one of the best weeks, in the history, the recent history of the Reds, when they won three out of four games against the Cardinals and then swept the Dodgers, arguably two of the best teams in baseball, uh, win six of seven games, it's not a surprise that psychologically you're going to have a letdown, and I'm afraid it came tonight. And uh, the Reds have three more at-bats, but they're trailing two to nothing right now. Well, both teams, the Indians and the Reds, had an excellent week last week, Mark. The Indians four and one, the Reds five and one. The Reds are twenty games over the five hundred mark, while the Indians are ten games over the five hundred mark. But both are battling for that wild card spot. Still, as you said, the Reds are in pretty good position. They're right now just a game and a half behind the Cardinals in second place, tied with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, ever since they won that eighty first game, they've kind of fallen off the wayside here. Yeah, and I think it's clear that when you look at the Reds and the Pirates and the Cardinals, those three teams, when you stack them up and, and get, forget all the hype and uh, uh, the rah-rah stuff at Pittsburgh, when you look at the rosters, the Reds and the Cardinals are much better than the Pirates. Now, the Pirates have some, some good players, good pitching. They might even have the league's MVP and Andrew McCutcheon. But up and down, uh, I think the Cardinals and the Reds are just better than they are today. I mean, it may change in a year or two. But I think it's going to go down to the Reds and the Cardinals, and I give the Cardinals the edge only because of their schedule. They have a very weak schedule between now and the end of the year. They don't play a team with a winning record uh, the rest of the year, and the Reds have to face the Pirates six more times. So even if they split those, that that can only help St. Louis. So uh, I think the Reds will get that second spot, and I think the Cardinals are going to win the division. And then it comes down to the luck of the draw, a one-game playoff in Cincinnati uh, between the Reds and the Pirates. Well, of course, this was a busy weekend in Cincinnati. They had the Grade 8 ceremony on Saturday night, the Joe Morgan ceremony also unveiling his statue. We're going to have Greg Mitchell coming in here in just a little bit. He was down at the uh, Great American Ballpark on Sunday night, had an opportunity to see Yasiel Puig, firsthand. We're going to talk to him about that. And also some interesting news about Pete Rose and just something that you may not have known, just what he has to go through in order to go to a Major League Baseball game during his suspension. But Mark, you know, there was a lot of excitement in Cincinnati this weekend, but I think a lot of people want to talk about Billy Hamilton and what he has brought to this team. The national media seems to think that Hamilton has brought a level of excitement to this Reds team that it hasn't seen all season. What do you think about what Hamilton has done just during the two weeks he's been up with the club? 
Well, you, you mentioned Joe Morgan, and I can't remember since Joe Morgan as prolific a base dealer. I mean, uh, uh, Dave Collins in, in the late 70s, and, and uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the mid-80s and late-80s, into the 90s, uh, he stole 80 bases one year. And, and since him, I can't remember a base dealer that was that prolific. You had, you know, Barry Larkin would steal 30, 35, maybe 40 bases a year. But Billy Hamilton is, if the guy can hit 250 with his stolen bases, it's like he's hitting 350 because he's going to get lots of doubles. <laughs> because when he walks or gets hit by a pitch or he gets a single, it's really a double. So his, his OPS is going to be high, and he has a chance to bring a dimension of excitement to this team that is really remarkable that I, I've not seen for a while. Now, the question is, where do you play him? And I was thinking about what the lineup could be next year. And I see what you think about this, Dave. What if you, if, if you did sign Chu, <clears throat> who, by the way, set a Reds club record tonight, getting hit for the 25th time, uh, which means he's going he's gonna to walk over 100 times, on base by hit by pitch 25 times. He's going to have probably 160 to 170 hits. Uh, so he's going to have an on-base percentage well over 400. What if you hit him second and you put Billy Hamilton in left field leading off, Votto third, and then down your lineup? Don't you think what what that would provide is somebody, number one, if, again, assuming Hamilton can hit 250 uh, and having Chu hit number two, you saw, you saw Chu play for years. Uh, I think that would be a devastating lineup. Well, the problem is is that Chu always had problems hitting out of the leadoff spot with the Indians. Now, that doesn't mean he can't do it for the Reds. And you really don't want to bat him in front of Hamilton because if you do that, you're negating Hamilton's speed simply by Chu being on base in front of him. So, yeah, I would say that that would be a very interesting lineup proposal for the Reds. The, the whole case is, are they willing to sign Chu, and what happens with Ryan Ludwig at that time? Well, Ryan Ludwig only has one year left, and I'm not saying you start Hamilton every game, uh, but next year could be a transition year where you give him 300 at-bats, 400 at-bats, uh, see how he does, but you still have Ludwig there, <clears throat> and, you know, you pick your spots. You can still give Ludwig three or 400 at-bats, rest him, uh, arrest Bruce, uh, and, and play him in right field sometimes against a tough left-hander. <clears throat> Although after what he did to um, the Dodger left-hander last night, uh, two home runs. But he, 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 the question is is a valid one, and I'm not sure anybody has the answer yet regarding Billy Hamilton. Uh, again, if he were a middle infielder, <clears throat> you put him in the lineup and forget about it, because hitting 250 is fine. But if you've got him in a in, in the outfield where you have to have some power theoretically. Uh, and it's going to be very, very difficult to replace Chu. Hamilton, I, I just don't think he can replace Chu next year. But assuming the Reds can, can sign Chu, uh, it would be really a very interesting team. Think of the on-base percentages if you have uh, Hamilton and Chu, then Votto, and then whoever hits number four ought to drive in 150 runs. <clears throat> yeah, that would be an interesting... Uh Proposal. I want to talk to you. We had the opportunity to speak just a little bit earlier today. And one of the things that I was questioning Dusty Baker about with the Reds was him moving Brandon Phillips back up to the number two spot in the batting order in last night's ball game. Now, he moved him uh, from, or back to the cleanup spot, I should say. He moved him from cleanup to number two uh, earlier in the week, Mark, and the Reds really started. Uh, hitting the ball a lot better than they probably have for the longest consistency this season. And then last night against a left-hander, he moves him back into the cleanup spot. Why was that, and is he going to continue to bop him back and forth? No, I think it was a short-term thing based on the fact that Brandon Phillips, uh, in, the cart in the last game against the Cardinals, uh, he uh, Matt Holliday came into second base and, and, and gave him a bad bruise in his thigh. 
and Dusty was afraid that hitting second, he wasn't going to, if he got on base, he couldn't run, which would kind of clog up the bases. So he put him back and forth just temporarily. Uh, and I see nothing wrong with that. That was kind of a smart move to get him in a position where he wasn't going to play or wasn't going to hurt the team because if he, he, the other day, I guess it was, um, <clears throat> I guess it was Saturday, um, he came out of the box and could barely walk out of the batter's box. And so he was sore. And uh, it was time that they rested him, and uh, hopefully he's going to be 100% very soon. You know, I noticed that last night too, Mark. He hit a grounder to second base, and he had a tough time <laughs> making it down to first. Is this an injury that's going to linger throughout the rest of the season, or is this something that could clear itself up in a few days? Oh, I think it'll clear itself up. I mean, I've had those – I used to get those bruises, uh, thigh bruises, and deep ones playing basketball. You know, you guys, you know, sets – sets his, himself and you run into his knee with your thigh and you can't walk for about three days. Uh, <laughs> and it, it is very painful. So I can empathize with what Brandon's gone through. And uh, so I think it was a smart move on Dusty's part. Well, over on the Indian side, um, right now they're leading 4-3 to three over Kansas City. The Royals just hit a two-run homer in the eighth inning, so the Indians are their bullpen, again with the struggles. And like I've said, Chris Perez blew the game yesterday for the Indians in a 1-1 tie. He gave up the uh, game-winning double in the top of the ninth mark. And had the Browns not played and lost yesterday, it probably would have been a bigger story up in Cleveland than it actually was. But I'm starting to read stories now around Cleveland and also nationally that Chris Perez is not long for the Indians, which is something that I've been anticipating now since about May when he was first arrested on the marijuana charge. But what what are your thoughts? Do you think that there is a place, uh, a hot commodity for Chris Perez around Major League Baseball right now? Not as a closer. I think he might be your seventh inning guy somewhere. Uh, but I, I certainly don't see him as your closer, or anybody's closer for that matter. Um, he, he, to me, he looks like he's out of shape. And um, I said that three or four months ago. So I, I don't know what his velocity is, but he, he certainly looks hittable to me. And uh, that, that's a scary proposition for your closer. You know, we're going to bring in Greg Mitchell now. And, of course, Greg was at the uh, Cincinnati game last night where the Reds finished off the sweep of the Dodgers. And, Greg, of course, the uh, big story throughout this entire baseball season has been Yasiel Puig, ever since he came up around the 1st of June, this was your first opportunity to see Puig play. What are your feelings on him, and what did you see last night? Well, I sure didn't see a whole lot last night. Um, and the, the big reason is because he didn't get a hit and, uh, you know, only hit a, a small little dribbler. Uh, that he ended up getting thrown out on. So it, it was a very impressive night for him. Uh, however, having an opportunity to see him in person physically, that guy looks like he's probably one of the biggest guys in the game. I mean, he, and there, there's probably not an ounce of fat on him. Um, you know, he, he kind of reminded me, uh, now granted, uh, this player I'm going to name was, uh, mentioned in the steroids era. But he reminds me of a Mark McGuire um, somewhat. He a very, very large upper body, large legs. Um, now Puig has a has a much bigger waist than uh, than Mark McGuire, but uh, he he just definitely is a, is an impressive physical specimen. That's for sure. You didn't get the opportunity to see him show off his arm last night either, did you, Greg? No, no, I think he had uh, one fly ball that was hit out his way, and that was that was it. That was the Puig show in the outfield. Not not too much to write home about on that. Mark, last night in that game against the Dodgers, uh, Greg and I talked about this earlier. Um, Clayton, Clayton Kershaw seemed to struggle throughout that entire ball game, but being the he may be the best pitcher in baseball right now. He managed to hold the Reds just to two runs, and, of course, they were the two solo shots by Jay Bruce. But this guy is just 
all arms and legs and all motion. He comes at you from several different locations, doesn't he? He does, and he's uh, th those two sliders he hung to Bruce. I mean, Bruce, if he hadn't hit those things, would be kicking himself. But every pitcher makes mistakes. In most cases, hitters don't hit them. Uh, occasionally, they do. Uh, but it, it was interesting last night. They were comparing, um, I think it was on the radio broadcast. I was listening to the game on radio. And they were talking about comparing Singrani to, to uh, uh, Kershaw. And the difference, they both have funky motions. Uh, if you look at uh, Kershaw, he's got a real weird release point, and he's a big, strong dude, but he doesn't have that fluid, the fluidity to his motion, and neither does Singrani. But it did lead them to say that the Reds have the second-best rotation in baseball after the Dodgers. And then they were, and I'm interested in your take on this, you, you and Greg. They said next year, after talking to Dusty Baker, number one, they felt that the Reds would not sign Arroyo, but their their rotation next year would be Latos, Chapman, Cueto, Bailey, and Singrani. And I was thinking about, number one, Singrani is, what, eight and three now? Uh, he leads all rookies in strikeouts per nine innings. You go up and down that starting rotation, that is a frightening rotation. Now, I don't know who's going to close. Presumably, if Broxton comes back, I guess he could. But can you think of a rotation in recent years that had that kind of depth to it and the, the strikeout ability of, of that fivesome? That, that's really, if they put Chapman in, in, the, uh, in the rotation, which means they've got to take Leak out, and I'm not suggesting they do this, but they did say, think back to a rotation that had five starters like that. Yeah, I can't yeah, think only, of any. Uh, the only rotation I can think of that even, I guess, would come close would have been the Phillies from a few years ago, but they were only about three deep. Uh, they, they definitely didn't have a five-star uh, rotation like the Reds could have. Um, so that that's definitely impressive. Yeah, and, and, yeah, again, and I, both, both Mark and I go back a little farther than you do, Greg, and the only other one, Mark, that I can think of that can even go four deep was that uh, Baltimore Orioles rotation back in the early 70s. Yeah, uh, with the, led by Jim Palmer and Dave McNally and, and, and that group. Yeah, they had four 20-game winners in that rotation. And, uh, you know, that was, that was one of the great ones of all time. But in, in just in terms of power pitching, I mean, my gosh, I, I hate to come into a four-game series into Cincinnati and face any, any four of those guys, much less a five-game series. So it, it would be interesting. And the, the question is, what do you do with Leak? Uh, you know, do you trade him for a bat or do you keep him in the rotation and keep Chapman, you know, in the bullpen? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure that one out. But uh, it would be fun to see what would happen, assuming everybody stays healthy, uh, what kind of rotation, how many wins that rotation would come up with. Mark, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. When was the last time you've been to a Reds game? Have you been here recently? But, yeah, within the last three weeks. Okay. The reason I ask that is because I wanted to preface this next question. You know, Greg, I know you've been to a few games this year, earlier in the season, and then course on Sunday night and Mark you know just a couple weeks ago you've seen it tell me is there a difference I know the Indians have pretty much been on an even keel and and excitable all year long as far as the team is concerned can you guys see a difference watching the Reds from earlier in the year to right now as far as the enthusiasm and the attitude that they've got on the team right now well I'll let Greg speak to that from from his perspective but uh I think that the knock on the Reds has been they've been too even keel. They've been too unemotional. But this last, I don't know if you saw it last night, Greg, but uh, I saw some real spark last night. And, and certainly having a sold-out crowd helps. But, you know, this team, you know, it may be the kind of team that rises to big games, and that's what you want. Uh, they rise to the occasion, and, and they, they beat the good teams. And uh, I, I think they've done enough now. They're going to be in the playoffs. But uh, the, the team does not have a leader. And that's you know, that, that leader may yet come up in the next couple of years from this roster. But they don't have one right now. 
in in my experience this season, I I was able to see two notable changes. I think uh, the first is that obviously there's a there's definitely a spark, like Mark touched on. Uh, there's definitely there's an energy about the team that didn't exist earlier in the year. Uh, I think the team really got a lot of flack for that. Uh, they had more of the I guess cross country runner attitude of, you know, don't start off too strong, stay the pace, stay the course, you know, pick up the games that you're supposed to get and and not uh not I guess shoot out too strong at times. Um, and now they they're really starting to turn it on, at least from an energy standpoint. However, I, I think the other thing that I that I really noticed is that earlier in the year the games that I was able to see, there were far more fans in the stands. Now, Mark, you mentioned a sold-out crowd last night. I I was there. There were at least 3,000 empty seats, if not more than that. Um, there were so many empty seats, I was I was almost embarrassed that, that there weren't more fans in the stands. Um, it, so... Earlier in the year, I think the fans, the, there was excitement from the fans, even though you didn't see it as much from the team. Now it's almost flip-flopped. Now it's time for the team to get back the excitement that the fans had earlier in the year. Um, and I think it's going to take a little bit, but as they uh, head into a strong end of, the, end of this month and into the playoffs, I think Cincinnati will get back on the Reds bandwagon pretty quick here. Well, I, I guess I, I know on Saturday night they announced a sellout, and they said last night it was a sellout, but sometimes you can have empty seats and have a sellout. So I, I don't know if that was the case or not. But at any rate, there was probably, what, 35,000 people there last night. That's not bad on a Sunday night. So Yeah, you know, I, think it, uh, I think it cracked over 30,000. Okay. Well, at any rate, the, the, the enthusiasm, I think, has been there from the fans most of the year, but there's also been – a, a parallel uh, frustration about the team because the team at times, I mean, tonight as an example, just a perfect example, they're playing the Cubs. They should pound the Cubs into the ground, and they're getting shut out And against a mediocre pitcher. I mean, he's a nice pitcher, but if they can beat <laughs> Kershaw last night and you can't beat Travis Wood, that's the up and down that a good team, a great team doesn't have. You, you know, David, you were talking about the great eight. I, I did not miss a game probably from in the 1970s, and I probably went to 30 games a year. And I saw that team obliterate teams. They would be down five runs, no problem. Let's score seven. Uh, in a one to nothing game, they would they would bunt. They would they would do anything they could to win the game. Uh, they won games that they had no chance at all to win because they had that much talent and they had that kind of fire and, and that you could see on the on the field Friday night with that grade eight. The Reds currently aren't even close to that. It's not that kind of team yet. Could be, but you know, it's right now the Reds are a decent team uh in in, in a year that there are no great teams. Can, can you I mean Atlanta has the most wins, but would you call them a great team? No, not at all. Matter of fact, you know, a couple weeks ago I was asking you after they played the Indians, how is Atlanta winning these ball games? Because I was not impressed with the way they played against the Indians. Yeah, I mean, if you look around baseball, look in the American League, and I guess to some extent it's a positive thing where you have a lot of parity in Major League Baseball, but I can't think of one dominating team. I can't think of one team that another team couldn't beat I mean, look at the, the Giants two of the last three years. The Giants were a, a little better than 500 during the regular season, and they've won two World Series over the last three years. They got hot at the right time. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. But there is no team out there in baseball today that you can look at and say, wow, I hope we don't have to play them. <laughs> Even the Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers can be beat, and the Reds can be beat, and Indians can be beat. Everybody can be beat now. Well, that's the same thing that I used to think about, well, I still think about the 95 and 96 Cleveland Indians, even though they didn't win a World Series. They got to the one, 
But that was a team that, boy, you can look back and you can think they were never out of a ball game. And you look at this year's Indians and you look at this year's Reds teams, and there really is nobody on either team that could play, and you and I discussed this last week, that could play for those teams, those Reds teams and those Indians teams back in their heyday. There just isn't a player available out there that could play for those teams. Well, don't forget the talent pool, because of expansion, has been diluted so much that you have, number one, weaker pitchers, and you have weaker hitters. So there's no dominating teams, and the way the drafts are set up, uh, you can't. It, it's hard to keep quality players because of the money. So baseball is a different game right now, and I remember very vividly Bob Housen saying after the 1976 World Series, uh, in, in the champagne-filled uh, locker room, he said there'll never be a team like this again. And he was right. There'll never be a team like that again. Well, no, there won't be. And and he was, uh, was it him or was it Dick Wagner that traded Perez? Dick Wagner. Yeah, because it, it wasn't too long after that 76 season that they decided they wanted to put Dan Dreesen at first base and they traded Perez. Yeah, and of course, the, the big deal that was turned down, which would have kept the Reds winning World Series, was when Bowie Kuhn turned down the Dave Rebering for Vita Blue deal, uh, which <laughs> would have given the Reds uh, Tom Seaver and uh, Vita Blue back-to-back -back in that rotation. Uh, that would have been a team that could have uh, won a lot of World Series. Uh, I think that was in 1977. Well, you know, one of the Indians outfielders, matter of fact, the second African-American ball player to ever play in Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson was Larry Doby, and he's going to be celebrated this week by the Civil Rights Commission. Uh, that's a big story, but the big story this weekend in Cincinnati was the fact of not only the grade 8, but unveiling the Joe Morgan statue. Greg, you had a chance to see that firsthand. Tell us a little bit about where that statue is located at Great American Ballpark and just what it's like. Uh, it, it's pretty uh, similar to the other statues that you see um, along the opening walkway heading into Great American, um, straight from Joe Nux Way. It's right on the corner of Joe Nux Way. And, um, you know, I think the part that I was really impressed with was that there were so many fans that were just dying. There were lines of people dying to take a picture with this new statue, I mean, it was it was very difficult for me to get to get up close and personal to a point where I could take a picture without somebody uh, being near the statue. Um, there were lo just loads of people uh, who couldn't wait to see it, and it's it is pretty impressive. Um, you know, it's obviously set up. He's getting ready to steal and. Uh, He's got a foot off the ground, and he's heading for uh, for the next base. It, and it's something to, uh, I guess, to admire. Not only that they they captured um, the essence of, of Joe Morgan so well, but that they also designed the statue to be so familiar to the other statues, so similar to the other statues that they have just outside of Great American, that it truly is. Red's history. I mean, it's not something that's completely separate or that looks like it's brand new. It looks like it's been there for years. And um, and it's it's very impressive to see up front. Mark, I guess the, the question that I was asked today by, by someone just doing business with, and I thought it was a very interesting question that I'm going to pose it to you tonight, as great as that grade 8 was, how do you decide who to build a statue after and who not to? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, but I think you start with the recognition that a player gets on a national level and Joe Morgan and, of course, had he be allowed to, uh, Pete Rose and Johnny Bench uh, are in the Hall of Fame, so the National Hall of Fame. So I think it starts there. And <clears throat> But you could argue, you look up and down that lineup. When those guys came out on Friday night, uh, Greg, I don't know if you saw that. I know your dad did. Uh, you you look at the 
when you had George Foster in left field, and as great as he is, he was kind of a forgotten guy on that team. I mean, and, and he hit what fifty-two home runs in nineteen seventy-seven, I think, and uh, drove in one hundred and forty-eight runs. Uh, and when you mention the Reds, you start with Rose and Morgan and Bench and Perez. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, George Foster. <laughs> That's how good that team was, and. So I think the recognition, I don't know who would be next to be in the Hall of Fame off that team. Um, I think Dave Concepcion, uh, he certainly, his statistics are every bit as good as Ozzie Smith and other shortstops. So I don't know how you leave him off. Uh, but with Perez in and Morgan in and uh, Bench in, I mean, Perez obviously should be the next one. He's in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Pete Rose was there during the grade eight ceremony in uniform, standing at third base. Greg, you told me a story last week in regards to a woman that you work with that went through the Reds Hall of Fame and explained to you what Pete Rose has to do to see a Major League Baseball game. Please explain that story to our listeners and to Mark as to what Pete has to do to go to a ball game. Well, yeah, so she mentioned to me that as part of the tour, the tour guide explained um, what Pete Rose needs to go through, and essentially he needs to um, go ahead and purchase the tickets from the Reds, uh, but then he needs to submit an official letter in writing to the Reds organization asking for permission to attend the game. Now, the next step in this process is that the Reds need to send an official request to Major League Baseball to approve the request from Pete Rose. And all of this needs to take place before he can ever enter the, the gates. It needs to be approved by Major League Baseball, be approved by the Reds, the ticket needs to be purchased, and everything needs to be signed off in writing. And this is each time he wants to come to a ball game. Every time. And according to the tour guide, he attends a lot of games. Mark, I just find that totally outlandish. <clears throat> Pardon me. I find it outlandish, but I, I find it illegal. I don't I don't know how maybe he doesn't want to challenge it legally is because of the press. But how can they keep a citizen from attending a baseball game? Well, you know, there are a lot of convicted felons that go to baseball games. I don't know how in the world you could, you know, keep a, a convicted murderer or, you know, whatever. I'm not speaking in specifics here, but you know that there have to be convicted felons going to baseball games. That's my point. I mean, I don't know how. Uh, maybe he just uh, agrees to it. I, I don't know. It's, it's so absurd. Uh, I mean, the guy never killed anybody, and we, we, we beat this to death in terms of at least my feelings on this. It's so it's so over the top outrageous. The guy's seventy years old. Are you afraid he's going to go out there and, and you know bet on baseball or something? Who cares? He's a citizen now. And I, I, the, the thing that is the most shocking to me is that he had an opportunity to take a ten-year suspension from baseball. It was that deal was offered to him by baseball. So had he taken it, he would have been back in the game and in the Hall of Fame. So just because he didn't take that deal, does that change the facts that were at hand that they would agree to give him a 10-year suspension out, out, out of baseball? It makes no sense. And well, I think Bud Selig is just a, a, a jerk for doing it. Yeah, and, you know, Mark, you and I have talked about this, and Greg, you know, we've discussed it. My feelings are is that, Every time baseball wants to make a little money off of Pete Rose, like they did on this grade 8 ceremony, the Reds wanted him, Major League Baseball wanted him, the fans wanted him. Baseball, whether or not they do it in public or not, they dangle that little carrot in front of Pete Rose, come on out, do this for us, and it'll look good when we decide to think about your uh, abolishing this suspension any further. And, of course, it never goes any any further with Major League Baseball, but baseball gets their way and they make a penny off of Pete Rose's name, just what they want to do. Yeah, it's 
it's a sad situation, and uh, and I, I don't know. Even his harshest critics, uh, watching Pete out there the other night at third base with tears in his eyes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as you've said, Dave, before. I mean, murderers have gotten less <laughs> conviction of a crime than than he has, and uh, enough's enough. My gosh, it's been what thirty years. Well, before we get into our Ask Us segment, Greg, uh, if you can get those questions ready, we're going to go into that. Let's give an update right now. The Indians are up 4-3 to three over Kansas City in the top of the ninth, but Chris Perez, in his own special way, came in to start the ninth inning, immediately gave up a base hit, walked the next guy. They bunted them over to second and third, so the Royals have runners at second and third. One out, down by one, and Perez is ready to blow another save. Mark, what's going on in Cincinnati? Reds trail two to nothing, and they'll probably lose two to nothing. And it's it's one of, as I said before the game started that, uh, that this is one of those trap series, and uh, uh, hopefully the Reds can recover and win the next two games. Well, it's time now for our Ask Us segment, where you, the fans, send us in your emails and your tweets to ask us at ultimatesportstalk.com. Greg, you've got some questions from our fans this week that Mark and I can answer about the Reds and the Indians. Let's get into it. Uh, sure. The first question that, uh, that came in was from Randy. And I think it's very fitting that uh, Chris Perez is about to blow a, yet another save uh, because Randy asks, uh, he, he says, I'm really impressed with the Reds and Indians this season, but I have one question for you. How likely is it that both the Reds and Indians have different closers next season? Huh. Well, I'll, I'll take that question first, Mark. I, I think it's very likely. I think it's I think it's almost impossible that Chris Perez returns to the Indians next year. Not only just as a closer, but I don't even think he'll be in an Indians uniform. I think he'll be somewhere else, probably in a National League park someplace in a non-contender's role because that's where he needs to be. He can't handle the pressure of not only a pennant race, but when he gets one or two people on, he just seems not to be mentally tough enough to handle it. So I would say that it's 100% sure Chris Perez will not be with the Indians next year, meaning they will have a new closer. Mark? Well, I think the Reds could have a new closer, but for different reasons. Uh, Greg, you were down there the other night, and the announcers on ESPN last night had an interesting observation. They said that you can hear a Chapman's fastball. Literally, you can hear it. At 103 miles an hour, it hisses. Uh, and that is something that it's almost impossible to replace. And it really depends on what the Reds want to do in structuring their team because you have a guy, certainly he's going to blow saves. He's blown four or five this year. He'll blow a couple more probably before the end of the year. I hope not. But uh, but you have a lockdown closer. Uh, so ninth inning, you've got. And uh, if you have the kind of starters the Reds have, they can afford to put a great pitcher like that in the bullpen and only have him appear in 60 innings all year. So if the Reds opt to make a change in their bullpen, it's not because they need to. It's because they opt to. And the question is, will he be more valuable as a starter or in the bullpen? Yeah, and, and you know, I think just a, an interesting observation from, from being in the stadium last night, there was only one person who got a louder ovation from the fans in that entire stadium, and it wasn't Jay Bruce. Jay Bruce hit two home runs, and... The ovation that the fans gave Chapman walking out to the field from uh, from the bullpen was louder than either one of those home runs. The one person who got the the greatest ovation of the night, Barry Larkin. He was in the uh, the, the press box uh, as part of the announce team at one point, and they showed him on the screen, and the entire crowd went went nuts. He was the only person who was a bigger rock star than Aroldis Chapman last night. And you know what, Mark? I, I watched that ball game, and I know Larkin's only in the booth because of John Crux's medical situation. 
But I thought Barry Larkin was outstanding as an analyst in that ball game. He he brought some things to light that you just don't think of, and I thought he did just a great job. Did you get a chance to hear him? Oh, yeah, I've heard him before, and he did uh, some of the Reds games a couple years ago, and he, he's very insightful. But don't forget, Barry Larkin went to Michigan and graduated from Michigan. He's a smart dude. Uh, he, you know, you, you don't get into Michigan even if you're a jock unless you can read and write. So he, he's a pretty intelligent guy. That whole family is. And it doesn't surprise me. I'll tell you where I think Barry Larkin could end up someday is in the front office, either for the Reds or Major League Baseball. He, he's that smart. He's that talented. He's got the Hall of Fame credential now. And uh, he, he, he's a special guy. Well, one of the stories that Larkin told last night was when he went to Michigan, he went there on a football scholarship, and he decided he wanted to play baseball, and he had to tell Bo Schembechler he was giving up football. Schembechler told him he was going to put him on red shirt for one season, let him play baseball only for one year, and then come back the next spring and let him know what he wanted to do. Well, Larkin decided he was going to play baseball, so he went back into Bo Schembechler the next spring, told Bo he was going to play baseball. Bo said, come back and tell me that tomorrow. And after he got done telling him that the very next day, uh, Bo let laced, laced him full of uh, four-letter expletives and ushered him out the door. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Bo. Uh, uh, all right, so let's, let's keep moving along with our Ask Us segment. Uh, Travis writes us, uh, to our Ask Us email, askus at ultimatesportstalk.com. Uh, with Puig doing so well and Kemp coming back next season, what is likelihood one of the starters in Dodgers outfield are traded next year? Would Indians or Reds be interested in Ethier or Crawford? Would, what would you guys give up for them? I wouldn't give up much for uh, Crawford. Um, he, number one, his contract is absurd. And uh, Ethier, I don't think he's any better than the Reds have right now, uh, especially if late, if uh, they uh, get Hamilton ready to play in the outfield next year. So I, I don't see the Reds being interested. You know, I I don't think the, the Indians are interested in Crawford or they might be a, a little bit interested in Ethier, but I'll tell you something, Mark. I've had this, I don't know, this nagging thing in the back of my head throughout the entire year that the guy who should be playing center field at Dodger Stadium is Drew Stubbs. And I just can't get that out of my head. Could you imagine in left field Kemp and in right field Puig with Stubbs patrolling center field for them? I I just think it's a fit. Well, it might be a fit, but I saw that Stubbs struck out four times again last night. And, you know, he I don't know what he's doing now outside of that game. But the last three years with the Reds, he has definitely worn down the last month, month and a half of the season, and the strikeouts just become unbelievably high. Uh, I know he had cut them down earlier in the year, but uh, what's his batting average these days? Uh, it's around 240. It's dipped. Yeah. Uh, it's not surprising. Uh, the next question in our Ask Us segment uh, comes from Caleb. He says, uh, this is about the uh, the Indians here. With the loss to the Mets, it shows that the Indians are good, but just not good enough this season. What changes should they make this offseason to prepare for a run for the division title or more next season? As far as the Indians are concerned? Yes. They, I, they need the, a cleanup hitter. The other night. They, they, they definitely need a cleanup hitter. Um, they need somebody that's going to be able to come in there and really anchor that lineup from the number four spot in the batting order because I think that makes everybody else in that lineup a lot better. That's exactly what they're missing is a cleanup hitter. And then what they need also is a shutdown closer. Uh, right now, Chris Perez is battling with the Kansas City Royals. They've got the bases loaded now, two outs, and it's still a 4-3 to three Indians lead. But they need that, that closer, Mark. They need that guy that they can depend on to come in and shut down a ball game. Yes, but every team needs that. And look at uh, 
Mariana uh, Rivera, uh, Rivera. He's had seven blind saves. And I know this is his last year, and, and he's 42 years old and so on. But outside of Chapman, uh, and uh, who's the right-hander for Texas? Um, oh, Nathan? Yeah, Joe Nathan. Uh, aside from those two, I can't think of a closer this year that has been that lockdown closer. Uh, they just they don't grow on trees. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think you're right. Offensively, you if, if you score an extra 50 runs a year, you don't need your closer as often. And that extra 50 runs or, or 60 runs is the difference between you winning and losing in many cases. So, you know, you, you could bring in uh, any, any closer with a two- or three-run lead, and they're going to hold it as opposed to a one-run lead. It's tough to hold a one-run lead. So I, I think the Indians, you're right. I think it's it's less the closer they need than it is more offense. Okay, uh, moving along. Uh, Rory, 88, sent us a, a message here. Despite the Reds' tremendous streak, I still can't help but notice that they are doing all of this with Heisey, Cozart, Frazier, and Hannigan hitting under 250. Votto is in a slump, and Phillips is hurt and struggling at the plate as of late. I love the run this team is on, but can they really... Well, I didn't hear the end of that, but I think you just made my point, the previous my previous point. Uh, if you score more runs or, or you have great starting pitching, <laughs> you're, you know you don't need a bullpen. <laughs> so the Reds have been doing it uh, with great starting pitching, and that, that overcomes a lot. But if you have great offense, uh, that makes up for a lot of ills too. I, I just think some cases that closer is overrated. Yeah, and uh, Rory's question is: with all those uh, those attributes and the Votto and Phillips struggling. Can the can the Reds really keep it going into the the playoffs? Oh, I think the Reds are going to make the playoffs unquestionably. But uh, I've said all along that I don't think they're going to go very far. If they get by the the wild card game, then it's it's a crapshoot. That 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 one game, uh, you know, it's just uh, a matter of uh, getting lucky and having a hot pitcher in that one game against uh, against Pittsburgh. But I don't see the Reds uh, going very far in the in the playoffs because of, of their hitting. Now, you mentioned those four guys that I brought up all year, but if you check their batting averages over the last month, uh, Cozart is an example. He's hitting over 300. And I think uh, Frazier's hitting like 285, 290 over the last six weeks. So th there has been an uptick. Even, even Hannigan, he's, he's picked it up a little bit. Uh, what has been disappointing is the RBI production out of Joey Votto this year. He's just even if he, even when they pitch to him, uh, he's just not driving in runs, and that is a function of who's hitting behind him, partly. But uh, I think he'd admit too, he's just not he's not getting himself uh, he's not giving himself a chance to drive in runs because he's too passive at the plate sometimes. Well, and after 25 pitches in the ninth inning, guys, Chris Perez got the save. He got the final out, kept the Royals from scoring the tying run, and the Indians win tonight. 4-3 to three over the Royals, so now they are a game out of the wild card. Game and a half, I should say, out of the wild card, just a game and a half behind Tampa Bay for that last wild card spot. So the Indians win tonight 4-3. to three. Never a doubt, David, never a doubt. And this is one of those games, had they lost this game, I would have told Greg to keep sharp objects away from you because uh, this, would have, this would have hurt losing this game. I didn't want to belabor that before it happened. But uh, this is the kind of game that you don't sleep afterwards when you lose. Greg? <laughs> All right. The, uh, the last and final question for this week's Ask Us segment uh, comes from Anonymous. And Anonymous writes in, The Reds' grade eight were back in town over the weekend. Who is your favorite player of the grade eight, and what is your favorite memory of them? Mark, I'll give you this honor first. Oh, that, that's, there's so many highlights. Uh, again, I, as I said, I never missed a game in, in the 70s. Um, not because I liked him personally, because he's kind of a jerk, uh, but Johnny Bench uh, was the greatest player I ever saw. Not He wasn't the greatest athlete necessarily, but at his position, he was, he was the best catcher ever. 
And the home run he hit against, uh, I guess it was Dave Justy, the, the changeup in the uh, 73, 73 or 72. 72. Uh, 72, the fifth game, ninth inning, Reds down to run. He hits a home run. And I'll never forget that. It was the biggest highlight I can remember. And, you know, Johnny Bench was, uh, he was just the greatest I ever saw. And uh, I remember meeting him a couple times. And uh, I didn't say he's a great person, but he's, he's just a terrific baseball player. Well, my hero growing up was always Johnny Bench. Um, I became a catcher because of him. Um, he was he was the guy that that that's really the first memory uh, of of baseball, real real baseball, was that game five home run, like you said, Dave Justy had nothing to do with the big red machine back then. Uh, the one that they're talking about, the grade eight. This one was in 1972, and then they were beaten by. Oakland in the World Series without Reggie Jackson, which was probably one of their bigger disappointments. But, you know, and the, Johnny Bench during that time was probably my favorite player, and that was my favorite memory. But as time goes on, Mark, I, I got to say that probably my best player, my favorite player from that time has to be Pete Rose because even though I did the interview with Johnny Bench this year, I remember back in 1981 after the strike, uh, they came to Cleveland to play the All-Star game that year, uh, right after the strike. And I was a little-known radio announcer at a station here in Ashland, Ohio, going up to Cleveland to cover the All-Star game. And Pete Rose gave me 20 minutes of an interview sitting in the stands at the old municipal stadium when I was just basically a, a nobody, nobody radio announcer from a small market station, and he treated me like I was Kurt Gowdy or Bob, Bob Costas. He couldn't have been nicer to me, answered every question, knew I was nervous, and still managed to answer every question and be as nice as he could be. And that, as far as my radio career is concerned, interviewing those two guys is probably the highlight uh, but either one, I, I would take either one. Johnny Bench or Pete Rose. Well, you, you mentioned. I have, uh, Go ahead. Sorry, I, I have one quick follow up to that. You guys both uh, mentioned Johnny Bench, and for some of the the younger listeners who you know have only heard of Johnny Bench by name and and never may have had the opportunity to watch him play, you know some of the uh, the bigger names at that position in today's game. You know, Buster Posey. Uh, how how much better is a Johnny Bench than you know possibly one of the best catchers in the game today in Buster Posey? Well, from I think you start defensively, and there's never been anybody better than Johnny Bench defensively. And when I say defensively, that's handling the pitching staff, throwing the second. Uh, I remember three or four times where he would hit the pitcher throwing the ball back through the middle because the ball never got more than five feet off the ground. He threw a seed down there. and he. But it, it's, it's his throwing, his handling the pitchers, blocking balls, and that doesn't include what he did offensively. I mean, he's just a, a fantastic physical specimen. Uh, and, you know, Johnny did more things in that position than any catcher I've ever seen, including Buster Posey, who... I think would be, I guess you guys would agree, he's the number one catcher in baseball today. Uh, and I, I don't see that he's even close to what Johnny Bench was. But the other thing you have to measure with catchers, catchers get beat up, and they don't have longevity offensively, typically. Uh, there's some exceptions, but by and large, these guys, their, their numbers offensively go down. But Johnny Bench, power, RBIs, he didn't hit for high average, but... Uh, just a terrific player. You know, I think the guy that comes closest to him in today's game, Mark, and correct me with what you think, is uh, Yadier Molina. I, I think he he's probably the closest, and he really pales in comparison from the standpoint that I don't think he, he blocks balls as well in the dirt. I think he doesn't throw as well as Bench. I think he throws for a higher, or he, he hits for a higher average, but he has nowhere near the power stats, nowhere near the RBI stats 
And the fact of the matter is, is that Bench was able to harness all of the tools that he had into being the best catcher that there may have ever been in this this game today. And really, you know, Mark, when you look back at that era, it was not just him. But Manny Sanguian wasn't a bad catcher either. You you think about him. You think about the Jerry Grodys, the Randy Hundleys back then. Those guys were catchers. Did they hit the ball as well as Bench did? No. Manny Sanguian might be closer to Molina than Johnny Bench is, but still, being the second-best catcher in baseball at that time, like I think Sanguian probably was, Johnny Bench, you know, to be second to Johnny Bench it was no small feat. Well, don't forget Steve Yeager and Munson. I mean, there were some great catchers back then, and, and you again, I keep coming back to the fact that baseball today is so diluted. When you look back at the, the teams in the 70s, there were some great teams. The Pirates, the Phillies, the Reds, the Dodgers, the Yankees. I mean, these teams were great teams with, with Hall of Fame all-star players, and you just don't have that today up and down with 30 teams. You can't, you can't have it. And, and Mark, you know, to, to answer Greg's question even further over here very quickly, because we're missing one big aspect, Bench revolutionized the catching position because he turned it into a two-handed catcher position to a one-handed catching position. And he did it flawlessly. He always kept that right hand behind his back or down near behind his right knee, and he caught the ball one-handed, and it really revolutionized the game moving forward from that point. Yeah, and of course his big claim to fame was that he could put eight baseballs in one hand. I shook hands with him one time, and I, I can palm a basketball, and I felt like my hand was wrapped in two hands. Uh, he, he's just a, he had huge hands. He had short arms, big forearms, very strong guy, upper body wise, and and so quick, just so quick. And his his abilities, just physically, he was just a better athlete than than any other catcher. But people forget that Johnny Bench was a pitcher in high school and pitched like like eight or nine no-hitters his senior year. Could have been a pitcher. He, he was that talented. But with his hitting prowess, uh, you know, you didn't want a guy out there pitching who could hit uh, 40 home runs a year. Greg? All right. Well, with that, we uh, will close this week's segment of, of Ask Us. Uh, fans, if you want to write in your comments or questions to uh, to our host for next week's show, you can send that to askus at ultimatesportstalk.com. Uh, you can send it directly to our host, Dave Mitchell, at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send it to our official Twitter account, at ultsportstalk. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Greg, for joining us tonight. Mark, what do the Reds have coming up the rest of this week? Well, they just got beat two to nothing, and they have the Cubs uh, the rest of this week. Then they go to Milwaukee, and then uh, they they uh, go to Houston, I believe. So they have a chance to to pick up some ground here. But uh, what scares me are those six games of the last nine they have against Pittsburgh, and that that could uh, that could really every every loss now, uh, you know, cuts down your chances precipitously to win the division. Yeah, we've really only got, uh, what, three weeks left to go in the season? Yeah, the Reds have only 17 games left, and six of them are with Pittsburgh. And like I said before, the Cardinals, they, they don't play anybody with a winning record. So uh, I'm not ready to mail it in yet, but it certainly looks like the Cardinals are going to win the division, and then the Reds and the Pirates will fight it out for that last uh, that last spot. Well, the Indians, they have 19 games left. They're going to finish out this series this week with – two games with Kansas City tomorrow night and then Wednesday at noon and then they go for the fourth time this year Mark you talk about a scheduling quirk this will be the fourth time that they play the Chicago White Sox in a four game series and this time they're going to be playing it in Chicago what a quirk yeah it is a quirk (laughs) that's what's happening and we'll be back with more of the Ohio Baseball Weekly next Monday night Mark hopefully it'll be a good week for both teams we'll talk to you next week All right, David, have a good one. You too, and thanks for all of you for joining us tonight. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer. 
And we just hope that you will join us on Thursday night for the Ultimate Sports Talk Show at 7 o'clock. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for battling through my voice problems tonight. We'll talk to you again next Monday night at 9 o'clock. Until then, have a good week, everybody. Good night.